one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And this is the New Statesman podcast. This week we'll be talking about a second independence referendum from Scotland. We'll be looking back on a bad episode of PMQs, episode of PMQs, uh, bad PMQs for everybody pretty much, apart from Yvette Cooper. And also Sarah Pascoe, the comedian, will be joining us at the end to talk about female bodies and to try and freak us slightly out about pregnancy. So Stephen, I feel... Well, not smug, obviously I'm not smug, but I feel like we spotted some things that were bad about the budget uh, in the afternoon of the budget, right? So we've just come out of um, PMQs, just before PMQs, uh, Philip Hammond U-turned on the Knicks rise. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking to a Tory MP last week whose take on it quite early on in the Farago was you don't have this big of a fight over 145 million, right? You don't do something like that. If you want to do something like this, you do it for 5 billion. So I think there was a feeling even among relatively loyal Tory MPs that they didn't particularly want to go out and defend this if there was going to be a U-turn on it, which they suspected, and also that they felt like you might as well be hung for a sheep as for a lamb. Yeah, I think... So there were lots of problems with the the national insurance rise. One was... As we said last week, it did break a manifesto uh, promise. Can we have a moment, actually, that, to be smug about that? Because I think, uh, I remember you saying, you know, George Osborne, it was like the kind of version of Harrison Ford complaining about George Lucas's dialogue, right? Yeah. You can write this shit, George, but you sure as hell can't govern on it. Yeah, and it was a manifesto designed to trap Labour in the election and trap the Liberal Democrats in the uh, coalition negotiations. And then... It's the kind of classic Osborne Gambit of being, oh, I'm so clever, I'm going to dig this hole, oh, wait, I've forgotten this hole is here and I've fallen into it myself. Because we've now had not one but two successive budgets and two successive Conservative um, chancellors. Uh, Osborne, it was tax credits. Um, Philip Hammond, it was national insurance contributions. So it's slightly more depressing, this one, because it's something which actually did make... Was more, quite a popular rise was quite and popular, was progressive. Fairly progressive. Yeah. Um, so it's a bit bleak from that way. But they both come from the farcical constraints that George Osborne drew up purely to make Labour uncomfortable, right? They're basically about going, look, I know you don't want to sign up to ridiculously high welfare cuts, so I'm going to go, well, look, I've, I'm going to cut 12 billion. And then, of course, you can't. And you can't... The, 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 I mean, the really interesting thing about this is popular in the polls, seal of approval from basically every tax policy person from yeah, right to left... Uh, couldn't pass. It's very difficult to work out if they're not going to do that, they can't really rise insurance premium tax any further. Like, they're already bumping up to the point where you can't pass that on to the consumer, and so it's hitting the margins of the insurance. They've already got a lot of sort of stealth taxes that are going to be increasingly non-stealthy. They're just going to be loud, oh, what's that rustling in the bushes taxes. And they can't even get this one through. But obviously the polls and the by-elections and the the council elections all suggest that they will get a bigger majority next time around. So talking about things in the bushes, let's not beat about the bush. This is not a government that is doing extraordinarily well in its platform of government, but yet it is totally getting away with anything. I mean, like if you ever wanted to know what literally the opposite of Rumpole of the Bailey is... 
Jeremy Corbyn at Prime Minister's Questions, was it, right? Uh, I, you know, I mean, this is not a podcast that has traditionally been glowing about Yvette Cooper, but she did one... Oh, God, it was awful, because she was... Question, I had this moment of, of, of wishing fluff. Yvette Cooper was leader of the Labour well, Party. I, mean, be, I wanted to be sick. Um, you know, <laughs> she'd have less time to spend at the organic bakery down the road from Stoke Newington, but it was actually... It, it, it understood the concept of the theatrics of PMQs, right, which is not always about necessarily asking the most probing question but asking the one that puts the prime minister most on the spot and she just had absolutely no trouble batting back the soft volleys that came to her across the dispatch box from jeremy corbyn yeah and i think i think the other troubling thing i mean as well as the fact that i don't like feeling nostalgic for someone who seems to think the big problem with 2015 was that they didn't have a large enough mug uh but uh, they carved the policies onto a mug, but, uh, really like a six foot mug. That might have won the election, Stephen. But but one of one of the the other dispiriting problems about Labour's current problems is they have actually meant that the the conversation about what went wrong in twenty fifteen has actually regressed. Because when people go, oh, you know, wouldn't wouldn't Labour be in a brilliant position if they went? So the NIC stuff was a, a really classic example but of the strengths and limitations of Chris Leslie, right? So he he spotted it very early on, which was his original job with 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 the budget. You know, back when Ed Ball's shadow chancellor was like, that's going to be a problem. We should go on that. He went, that's going to be a problem. They have to have a vote on it, and. Most of the PLP rode in behind him because Chris is quite popular in, in the PLP. And he's also doing a thing where he's just like cosplaying being shadow chancellor. Yeah. And then, you know, if you build it, they will come. Yeah, that's basically his. Well, I think because, you know, his, his feeling, uh, I'd like to make it clear, I'm about to, this is speculation. This is not something Chris Leslie has explicitly said to me. But my assumption is his feeling is that there are lots of people who could be shadow chancellor who are more attractive they get better write-ups in the press you know they're, they're you know they have a variety of assets than chris leslie perhaps does not have but then if chris leslie has been seen to have done a very good job being the de facto shadow chancellor in this weird time uh then that will extend his his political lifespan at the top of the party which i think is probably true all of that said, this was a really good example of both the strengths of the Chris Leslie approach, i.e. you can embarrass the government, you can discomfort the government, you can make the government U-turn, all of which are things that Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party has never shown any sign of being able to do. There is, however, quite an important but at the end of this, which is that Labour, one assumes, doesn't want to inherit a massive and growing black hole where self-employed people and where it where self-employed people are paying, are paying as much less. tax. And but also it, doesn't want to concede the principle that all tax rises are bad because it's the government stealing your money to send to, you know, people who are sitting on their sofa or in Ethiopia making a girl band or whatever it, the kind of thing is. Yeah, I, I, I totally concede that. The thing is, it's the interesting thing about, I guess, Brexit, right, as well, also factors into that in the sense that it is great to embarrass Philip Hammond, but actually if you are a Labour Remainer, ex-Remainer, mm. then the, you are kind of colluding with a sort of Brexiteer attempt to bring him down and install somebody who's proper, proper mad. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I have this, this problem where I'm still struggling to reconcile the fact that I'm spiteful with what I think the Labour should have done because my, <laughs> my overwhelming feeling is that the Conservatives made a lot of very silly promises and they have got themselves in a mess and my instinct is... And Give them a really good yeah, showing. Yeah, yeah, it's their problem. Get out of it. I think the the, the thing then... Because obviously Yvette very stylishly did the her, her, your budget's fallen apart, which gets you a better election result than Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy did the, oh my God, my shoes are on fire. What's going on? National insurance? I need insurance. <laughs> which gets you a very bad election result. But I think... The correct thing to do would probably be to stand up and go, but it's really progressive, isn't it? Wouldn't you agree? This is a great change. Why aren't you doing it? Yeah, Sad isn't it? Panda. Isn't like, it a shame you've abandoned this thing that would have made life slightly fairer? It is very popular within the country. Yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? Is that you kind of we don't really have a kind of great vocabulary for how you attack somebody. It's like the Donald Trump building the wall thing, right? Yes, you want to attack Donald Trump for breaking his promises, but you also kind of need to remember that they were terrible promises in the start. And this, like, George Osborne's tax trap was a terrible promise to start with. Like, the idea you had to enshrine in law that you weren't going to raise national insurance contributions. The thing I think didn't work with the Lib Dem tuition fees, one, people cared that people didn't want to pay tuition fees, so that made it more unpopular. But the other thing was, and what Labour successfully did, is they made it a meme that the Liberal Democrats had lied 
in 2010. It wasn't and they had gone into office and broken. Then it had always been a bit of a lie, which, I mean, they were helped by by the fact that most senior Lib Dems didn't think the tuition fees promise was a good idea. But I think the tactical victory that no one in Labour is really looking for is to sell people on the idea that the promise is a lie, right? It just could not be kept and it was always going to end in the way it did. Um, but to segue effortlessly from that issue to the big story of the week. Is it Scotland? Second big story of the week? Scotland? Scotland, yeah. See, I thought we could have a jingle when we talked about Scotland where it could go, Great Scott! But uh, we can workshop that. I mean, I'm not opposed to it, but our current pro- but our producer is on holiday, so I'm not sure we will get someone going, Great Scott! Great Scott! You, you know the reference, right? You're yeah, not from too- Back to the Future. Oh, th- I just thought it was going to be one of those things where I go like, oh, well, of course, like the shaman, and you go, what, who are the shaman? I don't understand what you're talking about. But back to the Future is a classic of cinema. That's good. Okay, so we know. Yeah, but um- I know all those old films. Casablanca came out in the same year as Casablanca, <laughs> right? But... Uh, um- don't talk about my youth like this. Do you know, um, I've got something that I might read out on next week's podcast just to make you cry, which is that we've been going through the archives for our 1997. Um, and next week is the anniversary of um, an interview that Tony Blair gave to the New Statesman, which is all about like, my majority is going to be so massive. You have to like weigh my majority. Um, but I don't want to be smug about it. And it's just reading it now is like, <laughs> it's like, oh, oh Stephen. God. But anyway, um, so Scotland. Nicola Sturgeon has said they, there will be a referendum again. Um, we're still not sure whether or not the Conservative government is going to... They're well not going to let them have a referendum. I mean, this is, this is my kind of... I know I, I might have become a slightly swivel-eyed conspiracy theorist, but my theory about the chess game was always that they knew that they would be, ter- they would be denied a referendum. And then you get two years of going, do you know who's beastly? Westminster won't let us have a referendum while you essentially switch back to campaigning mode the yes side whatever it is called whatever the question is now will be incredibly disciplined the no side is incredibly fragmented you've got Jeremy Corbyn a leader who is about as popular in Scotland as he is in England yeah that was good because everything that that sentence finished with I realized was wildly offensive um you know you've got Theresa May not more not again not a guaranteed vote winner north of the border and you know you don't have that generation really of grandees and it be, and, and I think as somebody said on Twitter you also don't have a Scottish Labour Party that can immolate itself in order to to win that referendum right because that that party is immolated already well I think yes I mean so I think it's win-win for the SNP to call for a referendum if it if it doesn't happen and Brexit goes badly hard to imagine I know uh but at every stage, when the negotiations are looking a bit gnarly, yeah, if we crash out with the deal, et cetera, et cetera, your position as the SNP is, well, we would like Scottish people to have a choice about whether or not they want to be part of this ongoing garbage fire, but unfortunately, the Conservative in London said no. And secondary, the other thing you can go is, I know you've got some very tough questions about schools and hospital funding, but the thing is, if only we could take back control fully of our budget then obviously those things would be great. And I also don't want to answer any questions about our PFI contracts. No. And, and I think the, the the thing about the unionist side is they do look troublingly, if you're pro-union, like pro-Europeans in the 90s and noughties. And they basically keep saying, oh, but we did this already and it, would, it wouldn't work. We, we did this already and, the, and it wouldn't work. And you think you're not really advancing an argument for... For, for for this thing, you you basically are just going no 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 you can't do this now and we saw how that particular movie ended. Yeah, and then- David Torrance makes a really good point in his magazine because we've done this on the cover this week um, about the fact that actually English attitudes as well I think have changed and I think you will have a lot more people in the English left. I think George Monboy has done it going like well who wouldn't want to unshackle themselves from this Tory nightmare. And that, I think, we were having this conversation earlier, is the big difference, right? Is that if you're the SNP, the concept we've got 10, 15 years of Tory rule ahead of us that Scotland doesn't vote for, you know, never votes majority Tory, then that is the biggest gift you could also ever want. Yeah, I mean, I also think, to tie it back to the first uh, item, so when I, I was in Westminster this, this morning and, 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 you know, an MP uh, stopped me and made the point that in the last referendum, and this person is, was not a fan of either of these politicians, but you had David Cameron, who understood the ways he was an asset in the referendum campaign, and he understood the ways he needed to shut up. And everyone who worked in Better Together will always say, 
the great thing about Cameron is we'd go, look, you're hated, but if you say something mean, everyone believes it because you're mean. So can you just say mean things? And he'd go, yeah, sure, I am mean. I, I, I've spoken to a lot of people who work with Theresa May, and they have a variety of opinions about her, some positive, some toxic. But none of them would say the great thing about Theresa May is she listens, she's willing to be told that she's mean, and to do things that someone else not called Theresa May thinks is the best approach. And we've also seen Theresa May's tactical nous on full display with the, the national insurance change. On the Labour side, you had someone who, if in 2014 answered to you, when, when's the next Labour government going to be? You'd have gone, oh, well, Ed looks a bit weird, but, you know, the polls all suggest 2015. Or, if you were George, you'd have gone, 2015, we're on our way! <laughs> um, and now if you ask people when's the next Labour government, they're going to be you know, it's like, God, I hope that happens before... Well, this comes back to the 1997 thing. So one of the things that um, the New Statesman asked people to do in 1997 was artists and writers who were experiencing a Labour government for the first time in their adult lives to create an artwork around it. So there's people who were relatively old at that point. And, you know, I just think that probably we might not be alive if there is another Labour government. And I think the thing is, I just think you're kidding yourself if you think that none of those... That's... Even... Even if you think Brexit will be a success, right? So before you've thrown the the Brexit dimension into it, I just think you're kidding yourself if you think then if there is a referendum, the SNP SNP aren't in a really good place to do better than they did last time. There is one slight caveat to that, which is that Ruth Davison has been immensely successful um, by basically going, "Look, I'm the one you vote for to keep the keep the union safe." The nightmare scenario for the SNP is if they, say, get 51-49, which is a great narrow defeat, and you can definitely hope to win the replay in four years' time, five years' time, whenever, unless the other effect of that referendum campaign is to cohere the unionist vote behind the conservative one. You so completely smother Labour that actually it becomes an SNP versus Tory fight. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think the other thing that David uh, Torrance has written in the magazine this week, which is is interesting to think about is the fact that the SNP are much more aware of their uh, weaknesses and the weaknesses in their argument this time. You know, they've effectively, they've, you know, they've done this once already and they just have to get the kind of the same band back together. They know the economy is a really weak spot for them, yeah. but equally well, they also have, you know, they, they can, particularly they can point to Brexit and the possibility of a hard, chaotic, whatever you want to call it, Brexit, and and say, well, actually, do you know what? Guess what? The British economy might not be in such a brilliant state. You know, like it's chaos either way. And it, which was your point that you kept making during the EU referendum, why you thought, unlike the rest of us, we were going to leave, right? Which was that older people saw this as a reversion to the status quo of not being in Europe, rather than this like crazy leap in the dark yeah. that um, the you know that the Remain campaign painted it as. I think Nicola Sturgeon can now quite legitimately paint this as one of two leaps in the dark. Yeah, I also, one, one that you're in charge of. And she already used take back control, right? Yeah. That is, it turns out, Dominic Cummings' gift to the world might be a slogan that works really brilliantly to get Scotland independent. And those blogs, obviously, I love love those. Can't, can't beat a really, well, yeah, really long Well, yeah, struggling to get to sleep. <laughs> I think I need to read about Bayesian theory and how it relates to saying mean things about Turkish people. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. As a special treat on the podcast this week, we are joined by Sarah Pascoe, whose book Animal is now out in paperback. Um, we last met at the Women's Hour Christmas Quiz. I don't yes, know if you remember I remember, a year before last. And I felt really bad about it, because every time you won around, you got an orange. That's that every, me, yeah. yeah. Every time I won around, I got some Quality Street, which probably uh, explains quite Wait, a lot. Wait, how did that... Did you, what, did you start and you were given a choice of yes. prizes? No, or? no, we, so it, we were incentivized, and I think that they had got all these chocolates and then read my, uh, I don't know, whatever they would have read and gone, oh, no, she's a vegan, she can't eat any of the chocolates. But actually, I would have taken them and given them out to someone else, maybe. But then I got Satsumas instead. 
But by, I mean, obviously she won, so she got like seven Satsumas. Obviously, obviously she won. Yeah, <laughs> well, I love Satsumas, and <laughs> I was playing to win. Um, well, let me, let's talk about the, the premise of the book, because yeah. why did you choose female bodies as a thing to write about? Well, originally, I mean, I was kind of talking about writing a book before I knew what to write a book about. So uh, I hadn't, uh, but I was, what I'd been researching for a, an Edinburgh show was the evolution of pair bonding in human beings. And so I was very interested in that and, oh, is monogamy natural and, and, and what, do, what do cultures tell us and, and what is nat- uh, natural and what, what should I be doing and all these kind of things. So I was thinking about that and then that extended out into I was reading, well, number one, that evolution, I was reading all these books and they all presumed that we were all male. It was like the evolution of the male body with these little, especially with Desmond Morris in the 70s, these little tiny things about women's bodies like, oh, yeah, women grew breasts to emulate bottoms, full stop. And you just think, oh, what, what could they get away with publishing in the 70s? Um, they, he said this thing about how uh, women, women scream at spiders because they remind them of pubic hair. <laughs> and it's just things like that uh, where I just like, there's some really, really fantastic science out there, but it wasn't kind of collated into one place. And I definitely then started to think about how I'd like to write a book that was a little bit like sex education, but so younger women about certain things like, oh, you're going to hate your own body. And we always blame it's just on magazines. And actually there's some other reasons, like they've done these proper scientific studies where they've done MRIs on women looking at other women's bodies or looking at their own body that's been enlarged. And they've noticed that there are gender differences. And while that isn't then dictating everything, like I never... It's really dangerous to say, oh, because you were born in a female body, this is how you feel. Or if you were born in a male body, this is how you feel. Because it's absolutely so much more complicated than that. But I wanted to say, oh, some of these things are slightly inbuilt because women, people are born in a female body. uh, That means that their body is, uh, in terms of evolution, it's very different now because we have contraception and stuff, built for making children. And it does mean that there are differences in terms of how we look at them and how we might behave there was some some quite kind of basic stuff in there that was also was nonetheless quite mind-boggling to me there's a bit yeah. about um the average sorry Stephen. i know this is probably not a conversation you wanted to wander into by accident but the average menstrual cycle can last between 21 and 63 I always, days i'm always surprised yeah. by the fact women in this office think that i'm going to be embarrassed by menstrual cycles i literally have two mothers I mean, yeah. do you have any idea how much moon cup there was yeah. in my childhood? Oh, like it just like yeah. it's just like I reckon if we had a competition of who would get yeah. embarrassed talking about yes. menstrual cycles, I would win, yeah. and you would you would be. Do you know what? I've never seen a moon cup, so definitely yeah. you're already winning. Unfortunately, I think that we learn sometimes that we have to apologise for talking about certain things because. Definitely for me, men when I was growing up would tell you off. I mean, if I had brought up a period in front of my uncles or my dad, I would be told I was being very rude, disgusting. And um, so we kind of learned to apologise for it straight away. Like, And then to kind of carry on, like it's a fact of life. But also still feel like, oh, someone might say, excuse me, I'm trying to eat my sandwich. Yeah, and I also feel like if you had another guy in here and you like wandered into some conversation about, I don't know, like ejaculation, then I would probably be like desperately backing away, not making eye contact from the door. So I thought I'd give you that kind of little yeah. but, I mean, escape hatch. But there was a difference. Maybe because, I'm just yeah. talking to the wrong... I mean, I, yeah. I completely think you're right, and there is mm. always this like, period. There can be, of, there can be. I yeah. think there were lots of very grown-up, mature people where it's fine. And also this idea, because the, the difference between ejaculation, ejaculation, there are some I think it's, it's, it's a it's not that it's impolite but it's more like to be sexual in nature whereas a period isn't sexual and it's not dirty it's just a bodily function yeah but, but we is, don't treat it like it has these other connotations but there's also kind of no space to really talk about this stuff right because I think now I, I now have a kind of group of female friends and quite a lot of them have kids mm. and actually there are just Okay, so I've got one of my friends is pregnant at the moment, mm. and there's some crazy stuff that happens to you when you're pregnant oh, that yes. no one tells you. So yeah. straight up from the fact that like, in the last months your joints will start relaxing, yes. so your feet literally start spreading yeah. as all your collagen yes. relaxes. Yeah, that's also you can get a weird thing at night where you start moaning because yeah. of the pressure on your diaphragm. Yeah. So you snore, but then you go like, you can only sleep on one side because there's a vein that goes up the body that the baby lies on if you lie on the wrong side. So things like that that every pregnant woman then becomes so clever about. But yeah, it doesn't seem... I think that's why 
women have to research so much through pregnancy. There's so much on the internet. And again, I haven't had children, so I don't know anything. And you do. My best friend has had a baby. And she'll just say this thing, matter of fact, and it's like, what? That's mad. And then you remember, oh, we're, yeah, we're animals. We're just this ape. Yeah, yeah, but I think that's one part of why the female body kind of feels slightly unspeakable, because its differences from the male body don't kind of get that much of an airing, right? There is that sort of secret lure, like law that you're kind of inducted into. The, the history of the medicine of it, actually, and I did talk about this a bit, I found it really fascinating that women used to give birth with other women and the word gossip came from um, the women who would help a woman give birth but with the invention of forceps it then became much more male and and so there's lots of discussion around how women used to give birth on all fours or kind of crouching and standing up like, like an animal that would and kind of to the ease position but the lying on the back with legs open became so that male doctors it's just really easy to wander in and shove your hand in yeah for a, easier for them yeah, rather than the birth um yeah, I was talking to. I did a, just did an interview with a, a midwife, and actually, the, it's a really interesting story because you, we always got conditioned to think that medicalization is this brilliant process yes. that really helped. And you know, there was a poor old time when we didn't have antibiotics and everybody died. Yeah. And now we have really high tech medical yeah. stuff. And birth is this really interesting place yes. where actually over medicalization really impedes people knowing like what stage they're at. It makes people very stressed. Yeah. And actually, there's a kind of without wanting to go into kind of a hippy dippy mm. like no one is allowed to have pain relief yes. and all must yeah. suffer thing. Actually, medicalization hasn't been a uniquely good thing well actually and also because it doesn't make any sense to us that women should die in childbirth because we think it's such a natural thing it's such a basic thing it should just be this like and i can understand why people want it to become some kind of spiritual beautiful thing but the fact is in nature we give birth to very very kind of neotenous babies they're too early because our brain grows so huge and that massive brain so you grow it as as, uh, as as long as you can inside the woman but it's still given birth to about two years before its brain stops developing but that's still so big that it will kill a lot of women in the wild like in hunter-gatherer societies women will still die in childbirth and women still die in childbirth in hospitals because you can't really do anything about it. Yeah, it's some... It's, uh, yeah, so I, that was one of the things I really appreciated about um, the book. Also, I just I thought it was really interesting about... Evol- I'm, evolutionary psychology is notoriously, let's be honest, largely false, right? Like a lot of it is it's, very poorly well, evident. It, well, it's just theories. So that's what's kind of great about it. You can go like, hmm, maybe it's this and there's no way of proving it. So I guess, yes, a lot of it. I mean, that's why I find it very interesting. And that's why in the book, I never, I never thought, oh, that's the answer. It's just like, here are some of the theories people used to explain it, which are very interesting in terms of knowing yourself or what you might think. But I was never like, and here's the answer, clearly, because this person has a PhD. Yeah, but yeah. it often seems to be kind of weirdly retcon from whatever the kind of com- sort of dominant paradigm is about sex differences at the time. Yeah, right? it works backwards. It's, yeah. And then there was a lot of cyclical arguments, which are my favourite. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the stuff about, you know, uh, eggs being passive, right? That they just waft along and they're mm. just kind of chilling out and then, you know, like, dynamite, uh, active sperm to yes. rescue. Whereas actually there's a whole mechanism that wafts these cilia. Yeah, that oh, no, no, and that draws them towards them and they yeah, all hormonal signals and things like that. But, yeah, the female is often seen as receptive. The whole idea is that, and, and, and that, that was since Darwin's time through all species. Like, there's no such thing as receptivity. Pheromones or signals are given out to show, and that's active. Yeah. Um, um, sorry, Stephen. So in, in the book, there's a kind of heckler voice, as oh, it were, yeah. that comes, I mean, when you sat down and you'd worked out and you wanted to write this particular book, when, in what sort of stage of the process did you kind of invent that idea? Um, I think very early on, I, in terms of my own inner monologue while writing, and I think this is probably very common with anyone who writes, and I don't know if it gets easier as you become more experienced or more confident as a writer, but actually I kept questioning my right to say something, my right to have an opinion, and definitely my right to state an opinion and just stand by it. So the heckler character was more me going, can you validate this? Here's a flaw in your argument, and trying to do that in a friendly way with myself rather than just shutting my laptop and going, I'm going to give my advance back because no one has to listen to me. <laughs> but, I mean, so you talk in the book about the, the different... And people really, like, being aware of being female, becoming yes. a stand-up, because, yeah. because people go, what's it like to be a female yes. stand-up? Yeah. Which is, to be fair, I think I probably have asked people that question before. I am that guilty person. But it is there is a kind of interesting thing about the fact that actually people don't necessarily... As you grow older, your, your experiences of being female definitely change, right? And actually, mm. for often, for a lot of girls, I guess, there, there maybe isn't such an awareness of particularly about the kind of corporeal aspects of, of femininity. Yeah. Well, I think there was a movement within feminism, like a denial of anything that would make us less. And I think that involved not... So I am... Um, and I, so I'll give you an example. I am... Um, 
talk quite a lot and, and on stage at the moment quite a lot about having PMT or being hormonal. And I'm really worried by doing so that I'm not saying all women are like that because I could imagine another woman going, please don't tell everyone we're mad. Please don't tell everyone we shouldn't have to work on our periods. Like I'm trying so hard to be treated as competent at work. And so I'm always really careful to make sure it's a subjective experience. Me talking about me isn't going, oh, women be crazy on their periods. It's me going, oh, I cry all the time. And, that's a, that's a, and if that makes sense. And so I think, but I think there was definitely a movement in feminism where we were trying so hard to be taken seriously. We didn't want to talk about weaknesses or things that could be interpreted to be weaknesses because there was so much to fight for. So I think that's why maybe the body got ignored a little bit. So it's like, no, 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 just respect us, trust us, we can do this. Yeah, I guess the kind of idea of, of going back to work and you're still lactating was a kind of seen as this really incredibly embarrassing thing rather than like, hey, look, I'm literally yes. a dispenser of food, which yeah. is kind of incredible when yeah, you think exactly. about it. Yeah, exactly. Like in a boardroom going, I could be cleverer than you, have better ideas than you and feed another human. <laughs> like, what are you doing? But I think, yeah, there was a hidden aspect of like, okay, listen to me because anything... Anything base or basic is going to under, or you'd fear it would undermine you, and maybe it did as well. Yeah. Like the thing about women taking their clothes off, um, with the, and it's interesting the arguments, but I think in the eighties and stuff, you have like this boom of glamour models and page three models, and and as business women, like these were women's choice, and these women were rich, and these women ran their own lives and had other kind of businesses, but also this idea that if you did something with your clothes off, there was nothing respectable about that. It was a form of manipulation, or actually, you were still kind of derided. And I think there's that, that, that's it about the body as well. That's really interesting. Uh, did any of it get you in trouble? Uh, or is kind of being a stand-up, is that, are you just immune? Well, actually, to and I think that's what I say quite trouble. a lot. I hide behind it. I go, I'm not a politician. I'm not a sex education teacher in schools. I am a comic. And so you can kind of step back and go, I'm a clown. Don't take me seriously. And also, and that's another thing I always say, I always, I've always changed my mind. There's always new information. I tried to make that clear in the book as well. I know in two years' time I won't agree with some stuff that I've said, but at this point, this is what I'm saying. Um, I feel like part of being an aware human being is knowing you're not right. You're going to get new information or just someone else's argument. Just like There are so many things with the younger generations, how they conceive gender and sexuality is teaching us so much already and I don't want to be one of those grandmothers going like, no, like my mum, she's not old, she's 55, but she doesn't think... She just finds it really, really difficult to understand that like gender fluidity is a thing. Like that it's just, but it doesn't make sense to her. And I don't want to have one of those brains. I, I think it's very, very hard. We all of us will become encased at a certain point, but it's really hard to just go like, no, I always want to go. There was a male comic the other day and he was getting so angry about the word cis because he was like, no. And I was like, you can't say no to a word. It's just quicker than saying identify as female born in a female body. And he's like, you don't have to say that. And it's like, actually, with some of the discussions, it's just quicker. I do. But he was so furious that he should be expected to use that word. It was so odd because I just, why would you get angry? It yeah. saves time. It's funny because it's not a word that I use unless I'm, because I think the meaning of it can be wobbly. I think oh, yeah. to use it as meaning not transgender, I think is really useful. Yeah. But the extra connotation that it's sometimes used with is somebody who is happy with the gender they were assigned at birth. Well, that is a problem to me as a feminist oh, yes. because literally the whole of my feminism is the fact yeah. that I don't want to be told to be no. ladylike. And, yes. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, you do have to accept that that people's you know language changes, right? Yes. We can't become these kind of insane prescriptivists where we go like, no, I think you'll find in 1905 yeah. we fix this. And that's the thing about getting in trouble all the time, actually. And the more, the more right on you try to be, the more the audience that you attract then gets disappointed with you when you make a mistake. And so I, I'm really surprised how I upset people when you think, have you seen comedy lately? <laughs> I'm so nice. I try so hard. And I've got a thing about being white at the moment and because um, I'm a white person. And then I had a girl who was upset and I was really shocked, but she was like, no, because when white, you're being flippant about racism and it's racism is a really serious thing and you're so good on other things. So, so when you're making fun of yourself for being white, actually in a way you're condoning people who are upset with people, um, judging people on their colour. And I really couldn't understand her argument, but just it had triggered something in her of like, oh, don't be flippant about this. Just because you're twisting it, you're not making the other thing okay. And then you do have to spend all of your time going... Is that bit okay? But this yeah. is a conversation that we have, isn't it? Yeah. About particularly like being on the left, right? You have to, you can end up talking to a smaller and smaller subsection of your your audience because you get, I mean, Stephen, you get loads of 
mansplaining. But I've now discovered a new trick on Twitter, which is to have a side profile or a photo of me in shadow where I just look like a random man. And people don't explain to me then, for example, the leader of the Labour Party is elected using the alternative vote. And it's like, yeah, I, I, I know I've now written about more Labour leadership elections than I really like to think about. Um, but um, yeah, it is a... I mean, it's an interesting one. I think I kind of always take the view that y you have to, you know, I kind of, I think Orwell is a massive bore and one of the things I'm proudest of in our history is that we sacked him. Uh, but uh, just throwing that Let's little Let us the usual address. Yeah. Um, but one of the things I think he, one of the few things he got 100% right is you mostly should use words that your reader understands. Mm. Um and you need to speak to people in a way that they they get. Um, and it's kind of okay to, for example, if I was writing about the Labour Party and I don't know the FT, I would use a less granular and specialised way than I use on the NS podcast or for an NS reader where I'm assuming a level of, of pre-knowledge. Um, but that's why I think there is a problem for young writers. And I guess... Comedy has a version of this because you kind of end up going to sort of small venues, right? But yeah. but it has the corrective as well. If, if you do a big show, you do a big TV show, mm. it's got a million viewers plus, mm. then you have to use concepts and language that are kind of... And you have to well, face actually, that's it. why, obviously, jokes, I mean, and that's what I love, jokes and writing, but they exist within a very small parameter. And actually, there's a thing that, um, in, I can't remember the name of the writer, but in Black Swan, which is so fantastic, that book, he says that really a lot of journalism is regurgitating the same two frameworks from different sides. So you look like having a discussion, but you're all taking certain things as assumed. And comedy, especially once you're talking about a million viewers, but even actually, I'd say a lot of the stuff on the radio, you're really arguing with a really small parameter. And usually... It's very reductive in terms of... It's like caricatures. All of the politicians have a kind of thing that they are, and then the, all of the jokes are about that. If someone changes their mind, that's the joke forever. If someone is weak, that's a joke. If some, Or a lot of it's about physicality as well. And I, I don't know. That's I think it's very. I think it's very infantile. It feels to me... I'm trying to do less and less of them. It's very, very difficult to have an opinion on one. Or if you do, it gets edited out. So, I mean, I know you've had the same thing, but um, something like Have I Got News For You, you actually have this huge potential there. But I've realised that you have to pick a team and you're either there to be flip flippant about everything and turn it over and go, I don't know who that person is and sausage dogs are nice. Or if you want to make a political point, you have to risk that it will get edited out and all you'll get is... Uh, well, not. Well, what they yeah, think yeah. is called the woman edit, right? Yeah. Or actually, sometimes it gets called the kind of the the, the woman explains the basic facts edit, which oh, way you yes. all just. So I've spoken to a couple yeah. of people who've done that, women who've done that yeah. show, and they say that one of them said, "Well, actually, I always take someone with me to reassure me that I did say things that were funny because actually, mm -hmm. the bits that make it in um, are just me going, well, of course, this will be the story about the Royal Mail sale.' Yeah. And then that's kind of all that you yeah. you get. But, but this is it. Yeah. I mean, absolutely, we face a version of this in journalism. It's always between a compromise between making yourself understood to the widest possible group mm. of people, but also communicating your message. Yeah, yes. as, as faithfully to your own kind of standards you can, yeah. which brings us oh. to Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn, tell us about your relationship. Well, I was say your relationship with Jeremy <laughs> yeah. Corbyn. So, tell us about your Tory yeah, affair with Jeremy the, Corbyn. That's, the, that's why I'm here. I'm having a relationship <laughs> with Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> your views on him have uh, kind of evolved a bit. They have evolved. Well, so the thing is, I'm okay. I'm, I'm I'm a largely ignorant woman. And so I did not know who Jeremy Corbyn was before he was elected. And um, lots of my friends in comedy were very excited. It's a, it's a, a profession where everyone is very left. I mean, there's a couple of people who aren't, and they speak very interestingly about it, but generally everyone's very on the left. And then because of that, it's again, it's like a group thing. No one really dissents from the view. There's lots of comics very excited about Jeremy Corbyn. He seemed very exciting. It seemed like suddenly young people, and again, it seemed comprehensible. Things that he was saying seemed to make a lot of sense um, and were He's easily filtered through. And so people, especially people who exist or consume a lot of their media through social media or Twitter or whatever. And then there was a couple of naysayers and then everyone was kind of shouting at them because they were saying this thing about unelectable. It's like, no, be hopeful, be hopeful. Don't be cynical. Don't stop us now. We're going to have a movement. This is a revolution, a peaceful one. We give everyone a kiss and a hug. But we, we all end up with a safety net in our society again. And we understand, we know that you save money. It's not about being bleeding hearts. It's about running society better. It's about having a safety net. And that saves you money on mental health services. There's less criminals. It, it's like all of this kind of thing and, and this buzz of it. And then as it went on, I thought we had so long. So this is 
again, I say this as an ignorant person who lots of people would want to shout out now because I'm ignorant. But it seemed to me we had so long between before a general election, there was enough time for him to win over the naysayers by being brilliant, by listening and compromising, but also being firm, mm. like showing that he could be a leader. And this is all projected onto him, as I say. This is the thing what happens when you go, no, I'm really unhappy with this government. I think it'd be so much better. And here's someone I think could do it just from hope. And then as it's gone along, I don't have any hatred, but... I, like, so I'm not I, I'm not an angry person, but I think what I've now conceded is a lot of what those early people were saying. I now understand because uncertain. I really feel like I really feel like what the right is doing fantastic, fantastically, and it's not just in our country or America, but all over the world. It's coming up with really short slogans that mean nothing, but that create that hope in the people mm. who disagree with me. About um, so, so, slogans like "Get our country back." or make America great again, mean nothing. Like, they are literally free cake. But when you, have, when you are working and you are disillusioned, which I think is probably every single person in the Western world ever, like, I don't think anyone doesn't think that their life could be better, you come up with a slogan, free cake, fantastic, all right, then I'll give you a chance. Hope again, what I had with, with Jeremy Corbyn, like, mm. oh, my God, it could be this, it could be that, because you can translate it into anything, because you decide what the country should be, and you decide what... America great is so in a way you're kind of building your own castles in the sky and then it felt like what we were doing in this country especially with Brexit when they were saying get our country back we were just going no rather than having an I really feel like we need to have the same thing you mean like, like the left just, was just going we don't want that vision but no, not providing just, its own it's vision. not true there is no free cake we kept saying when actually we should have said um, justice for everyone standing to this together like there actually are things we could do that could be short and snappy and offer those people the same things there's the things that they want and there's no reason the left can't give them to them yeah I'm, I remember writing a, a piece about trying to work out you know why people really love Jeremy Corbyn and a couple of things that you said really came up the first was that almost projection because he was somebody who had you know personally he'd, he'd hardly claimed any expenses for example oh, of course. Like, I know that he was really friendly to yes, people yeah. like people you know generally he'd always have time for them if they met him at the football you know he'd sign mm. an autograph like he he was just very down to earth yes. people really liked yeah. him and the second thing was um, this kind of, yeah, like a, a sense of, of actually let's let's you know let's try something really different. Mm. Let's let's throw everything to the wind. And I thought it was really interesting that you would say the people on the right would say you know absolutely don't sneer at UKIP voters mm. because they you know they think that Nigel Farage is the answer to all their problems as if you know yeah. he is. But there was no, there was no such reluctance at sneering at Corbyn voters yes. for for maybe over investing in a kind of really simple yeah. solution. Yeah, and it's very similar. And I think, um, again, in a human sense, when you pick a favoured politician, whether it's Nigel Farage or Donald Trump or Jeremy Corbyn, and then they are berated by the media or seemingly by your friends on Facebook or Twitter, you then love them more in defensiveness. So actually it causes more division because you don't think, oh, that's a sensible point about Nigel Farage. I should listen again to what his policies on the NHS are. You go, stop being mean. That's my guy. I yeah. picked a team now. And so actually you create... Uh, more disparity because you can't help it you kind of you feel i felt very protective over jeremy corbyn at the beginning because that exact thing is every day there was a, a something in the papers about oh he was wearing tracksuit bottoms or walking past some bins and you kept thinking he's not robbie williams so leave him alone and also go, I, I like that he's walking past bins and like you say all of that stuff about how he didn't go to this thing because he was there visiting this this person like that was People who had been very sick of politicians, which again, I think is a lot of people, they were like, oh, great, you're, all, you're anti the things we didn't like. You've given us an alternative to that. Yeah. yeah. I think, because I think, well, the weird thing is politics is the only industry, and I don't like using that phrase, yeah. but it's the only industry where you have to persuade people both to buy your thing, but also intrinsically, it means kind of getting them to say that the last thing they did was wrong. If I go yes. and see you next yeah. week, next week, it doesn't mean the last set I, set I saw was, yeah, for was, sure. was, was you don't a, have a to, wrong yes, call. Yes, you don't have to go, yeah, I shouldn't have yeah. gone see Michael McIntyre. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it, but it's quite difficult because obviously people shouldn't have voted Conservative last time, right? You know, that's kind of the argument that the left is always has to make. And I have absolutely no idea how it is you get from... Obviously, the 2015 election was not the right choice, in my view, to therefore this choice in 2020. Because you clearly can't go, oh, you were wrong to make that choice. Mm. But where did... Uh, but can't yeah. you, can't, I mean, again, it's been very simplistic, but can't you go, they promised us this, that's why you yeah. wanted it. It didn't happen. We're going to do that for you in a different way or in a better way or by not doing this that they did. So it's not saying you made a mistake, but it's going... I mean, I think they let you down. They let yeah. you down. Or, yeah. yeah. I think the psychology of trying to convince people that they're wrong is fascinating one yeah. because so often it 
back you know there's a thing called the backfire effect yeah where, where actually if you present people with facts that show that they were wrong yeah. half of them will just actually believe it more strongly well, they make it it makes you distrust you so this is what's so interesting have you read the book uh, heretics no oh. It's so brilliant, but basically it's about how once we've made our mind up, it's incredibly difficult to change our mind, and you distrust people who show you facts. If you believe in something very strongly, whether it's aliens or religion or the right or the left, they did an amazing study in MRIs of people reading um, lists of quotes about their favourite politicians. This is in America, and they saw eyes skipping negative ones, and everyone afterwards said it was a positive list. And, and I think that's how we have to be aware that that's how our brain it makes sense of the world. Like, it conforms it to what we've already learned. And that we also have to be really aware of that when we're discussing things with people. That's why I think that anger isn't very useful. And also, that's the thing. I um, I recently, but actually, I recently read Swing Time by Zadie Smith. I'm sure it was this book that she talks about. It. And it's really fascinating because the mother character is kind of uh, very political and becomes a politician. But it made me realise the failure in democracy. So the whole point when everyone got a vote. So first of all, it was younger men and then men without property and then obviously extended to women. The whole point of democracy should have been, and I think was at that point, that then the people who were very educated would have to ensure everyone was educated to a point they could make a good democratic decision. And I don't think that's happened. The whole thing with Brexit, and the pe especially people on the left, is that it seems to be that people with a higher education wanted one thing, I mean, obviously not everyone, mm. and then something else was going on. And then that's that's the responsibility of the people in charge. Yeah, and I think there's... A, um, Rob Ford wrote very interestingly about this for us. The, the, the education gap is not is also about the fact that actually if you're a graduate, then a globalised world is much more open to you, right? Yeah. You can take your computer science degree... Because your life is different. And you can get... Whereas yeah. if you're a manual labourer, actually that work has now been devalued and devalued and devalued. Mm. Anyway, we could talk about this all day, but we yeah. can't. Okay. Because <laughs> no, I think we have to yeah. like release you from the podcast yeah. catechism at some point. Thank you so much for coming in. Um, your book is Animal. It is out now in paperback. Rush to your nearest independent bookstore and buy it. Thank you, Sarah Thank Pascoe. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And now it's time for a segment we like to call... You Ask Us! Yes, I have bowed to the inevitable. Um... So, what's the question? So, someone said about Aaron Banks' new party. Aaron Banks has taken his bat and his ball, and by God, he's not going to play with you kids anymore. And is talking about finding UKIP 2.0. Anusha Kalian has written about this on our website. You know, will it be, be a kind of momentum of the right and a sort of movement-y type thing? Or will is he just going to start his own party? And I was keen to talk about this. Do you know why I was keen to talk about this? Because splits on the right, I enjoy them so much because it's kind of whoever wins, we lose. No, whoever loses, someone has lost that I don't like, and therefore I'm pretty happy about it. So, you know, either Paul Nuttall is unhappy or Aaron Banks is unhappy, or Douglas Carswell, your fave, yep. is unhappy. Douglas I can live Carswell, with... noted all... scumbag. <laughs> I can um. live with all of those possibilities. Um, but the question really was, uh, you know, is the right, is this actually proof that everyone says about, you know, the, the left and the Judean people's front, you know, are the, are the right as splitty as the left? I mean, to give a, a boringly sort of faithy answer, uh, instinctively, I think the the human condition is 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 is, is oh, equal to everyone. God, it's not a thought for the day. Um, but within the internal culture of the centre right, there's a don't split the party. Everyone falls behind the leader. It is quite noticeable that there were so few defections to UKIP, even though people like I don't know. Uh, Peter Bone, Philip Hollowbone, right? They're into Bill Cash. Like their entire parliamentary careers were all about Euroscepticism, and yet they didn't leave for the Eurosceptic party. They saw it was always better to be inside the Tory party agitating. Yeah, and I think actually, I think with UKIP, if you've joined in the same way, it's a bit like why did the SDP split uh, again in, in 1990? Well, because it's like any taboo, right? So it's why you get incestuous families. <laughs> no, seriously, because when a, when a taboo is broken by by one person, it's easier to break the taboo again. You kind of need two people to break the taboo in an incestuous family. Well, so four people. You have uh, one. But my my point is is that any taboo once it's broken is is easier to break. There is not, let's face it, a taboo on splitting, fighting in public, casting doubt on the motives of other people. You know, accusing people of being virtue virtue signaling Corbynites, red Tory Blairites, etc., etc. That is not something which there is a lot of social pressure not to do on the left. Whereas, I my instinct is is once you've like gone the full Aaron Banks, you, you might never as well, go full yeah, Aaron Banks. You might as well do it again. So I don't think it is. 
different. I also think... It also, isn't it? It's just fundamentally an ego thing, which yeah. is that they are only interested in politics insofar as people are listening to them. And I think that's why Nigel Farage is now kind of... His new career is just as... He really never saw the UK independence parties much more than the Nigel Farage party. I think that's kind of the, the vibe that I get now. Yeah, and I think... Well, it is a bit like one of those weird student societies that someone sets up to run for SU president but is notionally about, you know, international relations or, you know, or signing letters about the local English language lessons, right? And then weirdly, by the third generation, it is just a very earnest society actually teaching English language lessons, which is obviously a good thing. Uh, Whereas with UKIP, they've achieved what they wanted when it was set up, Admittedly, not in a way that its other founder, Alan Sked, would have wanted. But, you know, they, they've achieved what they, they set out to do. And now it's this weird schismatic kind of kind of thing. I think the... Also, loads and loads and loads of people have left UKIP. I think in the last parliament in Europe, they had more MPs go independent than anyone else. I mean, yeah. and often in pretty spectacular ways. Like, Nikki, I can say Sinclair accused Nigel Farage of, you know, like being well Larry. Uh, you know, lots of people get investigated for various financial things that perhaps never get entirely resolved. Um, Robert Kilroy Silk, of course, you'll remember, oh, uh, yeah. left to found Veritas. I think then probably like split from himself later. Do you know what makes me feel a bit uncomfortable is when people make fun of Winston McKenzie? Because he used to be a boxer, right? He's clearly... He, uh, he just has the vibe of someone... he joined UKIP because he's been hit in the head? Well, I just think someone who joins that many political parties and gives that many deranged interviews who literally works in a job where you get hit in the head and you go mad, and that's why boxing is bad. Um, I just It just feels a little bit like kind of this weird sort of... Just feels faintly cruel. Okay, anyway, that's but my nonetheless, for the day. The um, the I'm, overarching thing is that UKIP as a party has been particularly prone to splits. I enjoyed it. We talked to some of the people during, um, backstage in Sunday politics during the UKIP leadership election, right? And it was fascinating. Like this sort of real. They had that real. Uh, we are, again. I really enjoyed this. Obviously, they had that real hatred that you only have for somebody who is like ninety nine percent on your side. I mean, the way that like, they would just talk about Douglas Carswell was so... Oh, oh. I mean, he is a scumbag. <laughs> You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with Helen Lewis and me, Stephen Bush. Our music is by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Our podcast is produced by Anna Leskovich and mixed by James Shields. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,